Welcome to Climate Cast, a podcast on climate change and biodiversity by students from Mississippi in the United States and Essen in Munich in Germany, produced by Pocasito and sponsored by the German Foreign Office. Hi, my name is Annabelle Jordan. I live in Pass Christian, Mississippi. Hi, my name is Berzan and I live in Bottrop, Germany. Hello, my name is Jem Ali Esbudak and I live in Essen, Germany. My name is Jacqueline and I live in a city called Essen in Germany. Hey, I'm Lillian. I'm from Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Hi, my name is Matthias. I'm 19 years old and I'm living in the southern part of Germany, close to the city of Munich. Hi, my name is Melina. I'm from Gulfport, Mississippi. Hey, I'm Nora Skinner. I work for Mississippi State um, Extension Service. I helped run this camp. I'm originally from North Carolina but now I live in Biloxi, Mississippi. Hey there, I'm Oliver from Munich, and me and Matthias are responsible together for the part that plays in Munich. Hello, my name is Ryan. I'm from Louisiana, and I've been doing a bit of research lately on neurons and how they affect the sea life and just um, the world in general. Hi, I am Serafna Elgün and I live in Essen, Germany. Okay, so this is our team. Let's start our program in Essen, Germany. The Ruhr area can objectively be described as a collection of cities in North Rhine-Westphalia, the federal state in the west of Germany, in which some of the biggest cities in Germany lay. For example, the cities Essen, Dortmund and Bochum. But this simple localization does in no way entail the history and social aspect of the Ruhr area. Coal mining had its climax in 1957, when in the Ruhr area alone, 500,000, half a million people, worked in the hard coal mining industry. This vertiginous number of workers can be explained with immigrant workers. Immigrants who came to Germany to make more money than in their home countries or recruited to fill in the gaps in the job market during the post-war period, meaning the years following 1944. Many of those people came from Poland, Turkey, Greece, Italy or Spain, but often their stay didn't remain temporary, making the Ruhr area a melting pot for several cultures. In the collieries, a new culture, a brotherhood, was formed, even creating an own dialect, sayings and plenty of other things that still make the Ruhr area what it is now. On the whole, collieries are the best negative example of the Ruhr area for biodiversity, since we rob the animals of all their possible habitats, the air, water and the ground. Now it is tried to revive those places again, and ideally undoing what harm has been done to biodiversity, which is thrived at through renaturation and active regeneration of the environment that is as natural as possible. One of the ways this has been implemented is the industrial forest in Essen, which is a forest practically untouched by people, and a way for animals to regain their rightful status in the rural area. Overall, it can be said that the coal phase-out is to be seen as positive in regard to mankind and our environment. Critics of it may try to make valid arguments, but those can nowadays be easily refuted with innovation willpower. The places that were reliant on mining also are unharmed by the phase-out, as long as a new economical focus is facilitated by politics and the cultural standpoint isn't undermined. 
Thank you, Jacqueline. Let's hear some more about life in the Ruhrgebiet, the area around the River Ruhr. Hi, I'm Sedef and I have a question for you. So first of all, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Ruhrpottler or Ruhrpott in general, both in the past and today? To be honest, I immediately thought of dialects, soccer, hospitality, but also of an understanding of biodiversity. So you've probably already guessed it. Today I want to take a closer look with you at the social statements on biodiversity in the Ruhr region, in the past and today. And I can um, tell you one thing in advance. The social position of people in the Ruhr area has changed a lot over time. But today we're going to look at a very specific example of how social status has um, ultimately changed and how people have become aware of climate protection and um, biodiversity. It's Duisburg Rheinhausen. Um, the era of the seaworks in the Ruhr area, especially in Duisburg Rheinhausen, had a significant impact on the lives and social status of the people in the region. As the heyday of the steel industry brought economic growth and jobs on the one hand, but also social challenges and complex environmental problems on the other. These include, for example, exhaust fumes, chemical residues, um, air pollution or um, acid rain or the death of plants or water pollution. And this in turn affected the habitats of animals and plants, leading to decline in biodiversity and the destruction of natural uh, ecosystems. Yeah, here are a few examples. Um, for example, the Amshire conversion. The Amshire conversion is a large-scale renaturation project in the Ruhr region. Um, in the past, the Amshire was considered a heavily polluted sewer. Um, today, it is based uh, being systematically restored to. Um, actually create natural habitats for plants and animals and this project not only has an ecological but also social impact um, citizens are actively involved in you know planning processes and can thus become part of the transformation of their living space but also green capital Essen 2017. Um, I actually live in Essen. Um, Essen was the green, um, the Euro European green capital in 2017. Um, as a part of this, uh, a lot of environmental projects were promoted and implemented. For example, green spaces were expanded, cycle paths were created, and ed educational programs for sustainable development were introduced. And this showed clear, a clear a change in the population's awareness of environmental issues and led to a stronger commitment to the protection of um, biodiversity and there's one quote i like to read out um the future of the Ruhr region lies in a balanced relationship between economic development and environmental protection 
Hi everyone, I'm Jem Özbudak and today we're diving into one of the most pressing environmental issues of our time, global change and biodiversity loss. This is why renaturation, the restoration of natural areas that have been impacted or destroyed by human activities, is becoming increasingly important. Renaturation aims to return ecosystems to their original natural state, or at least restore their ecological function. A spectacular example of renaturation measures is the Amsha River in the heart of the rural area, whose condition had deteriorated dramatically as a result of industrialization. In this context, the question arises as to what extent renaturation has contributed to the restoration of biodiversity in the Amsha. To get to the bottom of this and other exciting questions about the renaturation of the Amsha and its influences on biodiversity, I spoke to a renowned specialist in the field of aquatic ecosystem research, Professor Dr. Florian Lese. As the interview was conducted in German, I will now present its content in English. At the beginning of our conversation, we touched on the topic of renaturation of the Emscher. Professor Dr. Lese explained that the Emscher catchment area covers an enormous area of around 700 square kilometers, or about 270.27 square miles, which includes the entire northern rural region. As the renaturation of the Emscher is a project that has been ongoing for a lot of generations and one of the biggest nature preservation projects for ecological restoration, it has already cost over 5 billion euros, which is about 5.5 billion US dollars. I then spoke to Professor Dr. Lese about the various techniques involved in renaturing the Emscher. He explained that the first and most important step in this process is to reduce the material pollution of the ecosystem. For many years, untreated industrial and domestic wastewater flowed into the Amsher, causing significant pollution. One of the main measures was therefore to first channelize the wastewater, especially in the upper reaches, and to decentralize the wastewater treatment plants. Another important aspect of the renaturation was to free the river from its concrete channels. Although these constructions were practical for river regulation, they did not provide a suitable habitat for many organisms, such as those that normally colonize the bottoms of rivers. The concrete was very dangerous for them, and most of them cannot survive in such an unnatural environment. This is the reason the concrete shells were removed in many places to give the river more natural space. Professor Dr. Lese also emphasized the importance of the so-called field of dreams approach in science. This approach is based on giving the river space and hoping the renaturation will then happen by itself in large parts, within a framework that is acceptable in terms of flood protection. In addition to these measures, specific interventions have also been carried out, such as the reintroduction of fish species in clean areas of the river. Other techniques include measures such as planting riparian trees to shape the water coast, which helps to regulate the temperature. These diverse approaches show how complex the renaturation work on the Amsha is. 
When I spoke to Professor Dr. Lese about the concrete results of the renaturation of the Amsha, it became clear how impressive the changes are. He explained that you can see the success of the renaturation particularly well once you compare the dirtiest parts of it in the past with how they look now. In the past, there was hardly any visible life there, apart from bacteria. Today, however, sampling reveals a multitude of small insects, larvae, and worms. This increase in biodiversity at the bottom of the Amsha is a clear indicator of the success of the renaturation measures. Another particularly impressive example would be the Amsha estuary, which has moved more and more north up to Dienstlaken in the past few years. And while it was still a major building site not too long ago, a recent species counting done by Professor Dr. Lese and his colleagues showed that nowadays there are a lot of different species living there, such as different fish, amphibians, migratory birds, and so on. This shows that the renaturation has helped to create an environment in which plants and animals can recolonize and thrive in greater numbers than before. Another exciting part of our conversation with Professor Dr. Lese was about the chances of survival of the species that originally lived in the Amsha area and the effects of climate change and the introduction of new species. He made it clear that we cannot accept the community of life in the Amsha to return to its original state. He emphasized that the goal of restoration should not be to achieve a like-before state, as this is not realistic due to multiple changes, including climate change and the introduction of new species, of course. One interesting example he mentioned was the spreading of organisms that were not originally native to the Rhine and have entered the Rhine through international trade and waterways such as the main Danube Canal. With the relocation of the Amsha estuary and the improved access, new species have now also migrated into the Amsha. Professor Lese specifically mentioned the black-mouthed gooby from the Black Sea region as a species which will significantly change the biocenosis in the Amsha. He also emphasized that the effects of invasive species are likely to have a greater impact than climate change itself. However, he noted that while some of the newly introduced species do cause changes, this does not necessarily have to be negative. At the same time, he pointed out that despite the successful restoration and positive developments, there are challenges, particularly in relation to ongoing pressures from the surrounding urban areas, which may mean that not all of the original species can return. Overall, however, Professor Lese was positive about the future of the Amsha. In a rather interesting part of our conversation, we discussed the additional challenge of renaturalizing the Amsha in the rural region. In addition to the ecological aspects already mentioned, there are other significant challenges in this densely populated industrial area. Pollution from mine water, for example, is a constant challenge. This is a direct consequence of the long history of coal mining in the region. The industrial past has led to a long-term problem that the Amsha will have to contend with for a long time to come. Another issue is the high population density in the rural region. 
Despite modern wastewater treatment plants and the ability to purify wastewater, the challenge remains as to what to do with the treated water and the nutrients it contains. These nutrients continue to represent a burden for the amateur. In conclusion, Professor Leser emphasized that we can never expect a completely clean river in the rural region, in the sense of a sandy lowland watercourse. Nevertheless, he expressed confidence that a functional and ecological valuable body of water can be achieved, as it is already observed in a lot of places. In addition to the ecological effects, such as the creation of a fundamental river, renaturation certainly has an impact on social life and also brings economic benefits, said Professor Dr. Deser. He uses his own life situation as an example for this. He lives in the northern rural area and enjoys running. In the past, the smell on his running route was strongly influenced by the Emshire, which was very smelly. That was also the reason why apartments right next to the Emshire were the cheapest at the time. This is no longer the case and apartments and houses in the area are increasing in value, which is why more and more families with children are moving to the area. But the Emscher renaturation also has economic benefits, as there are many jobs in the rural area that are directly or indirectly linked to the Emscher. In addition, although 5.5 billion euros were invested as input, scientific analysis shows that the output is over 10 billion euros, which is much higher and definitely worth the effort. In addition, an intact ecosystem can also take on tasks such as flood protection. These are just some of the reasons why the renaturation of the Emshire is important from an ecological point of view. As I am interested, and I am sure you are too, I also asked Professor Dr. Leser which aspects are currently the focus of his work. He and his team are currently concentrating on the effects of stress factors for example, environmental influences that do not correspond to normal conditions on ecosystems. The focus is not only on the individual effects of these factors, but in particular on the combined effects. Professor Leser explained that in the past, research has often looked at individual stress factors in isolation, such as the effects of a particular substance on biodiversity. However, the current interest of his research group is what happens when several stress factors occur at the same time. It could be that a combination of these factors leads to much more serious effects than each factor on its own. A particular focus is on the concept of multiple stressors. The concept refers to how different stressors can interact and potentially reinforce each other. The aim is to find out how such combinations affect ecosystems. In some cases, two stressors may potentiate their negative effects, which poses major challenges for science. As an illustration, we can take medicine, where the combination of certain medicines can cause uh, undesirable side effects. It is similar in ecology, where the combination of stress factors such as nutrient pollution and temperature increase can lead to unpredictable and potentially much more severe effects. At the end of our conversation, we talked about the overall importance of the renaturation project. His message to the public emphasized 
the immense importance of such projects, not only locally, but worldwide. He emphasized that while the nature can exist without us, we can't exist without most of the nature. He pointed out how much nature contributes to human well-being. A walk along the renaturalized section of the Emscher is, for example, a much better and more pleasant experience than along the polluted watercourses uh, of the past. This change not only lifts the mood, but also has far-reaching positive consequences for the entire living environment, including soil formation. Professor Leser emphasized that any investment in restoration projects is a worthwhile investment. However, he also emphasized that we should abandon the idea that restoration is a backward-looking process aimed at restoring past conditions. Instead, we should have the courage to accept new ecosystems, even if they contain species that we may not have originally wanted to see in these particular ecosystems. He concluded with the advice that we should get out more often and experience our natural ecosystems firsthand to truly appreciate the joy and health benefits they provide. I hope you enjoyed listening to the presentation of the contents of this interview and were able to take away useful insights and information. The work of Professor Leser and his team and the topics we have discussed today are of crucial importance for our environment and our society. It was a great pleasure to share these experiences and insights. I hope the interview has piqued your interest and raised your awareness of the importance of restoration projects. Next, Berzan talks with Ali from Mississippi State University about local climate and biodiversity projects. Are there local projects that you uh, know of about biodiversity and climate change? On local levels, there are some initiatives here and there. Um, like I know fishing is is a really big part of the culture down here. And on the pier, the fishing piers, you can see um, these little like pipes that um, people can put their fishing line in into those pipes is like kind of like a little trash so it doesn't end up into the waters mm. um, so that's like that's cool um, and then you know concurrently with that Mississippi State Extension we do a lot of um, like marine debris work um, we have two programs through our office um, Mississippi Inland Cleanup and the Mississippi Coastal Cleanup um, coastal cleanup, you know, they go up and down all of the beaches and then inland cleanup does, you know, more of like the terrestrial pollution prevention. Do you think that a lot of uh, projects could be supported by voluntary work, for example, because I know that there are a lot of um, projects that uh, wouldn't work in Germany without uh, voluntary work and without volunteers that um, also um, yeah, put a lot of their free time uh, into into projects and um preservation of, of nature and of biodiversity yeah for sure all of um the coastal cleanup and the um, inland cleanup is completely volunteer run oh, i spoke with ryan and nora about nurdles small pieces of plastic overwhelming beaches around the globe but i learned something else in texas they actually have nurdle patrol nurdle patrol 
So we do that. We do Nerdle Patrol through our office here. So what does the Nerdle Patrol do? So every, I think it's like every second Saturday or something in the month, um, um, Elizabeth, she works in our office. She will take a group of like volunteers. It's usually like high school students. Um, and they'll just go to a local beach and they will literally just walk the entire shoreline hunched over, like looking for these nurdles. And they're so tiny, like it's so hard to see them. Um, but they find a lot, like they find way more than you would expect. And they're just, they wash up like in the rack line. So where a lot of like other pollution or like even like natural, like seaweed will wash up at that high tide line. And they're just kind of sitting there and they're little, little round dots. That's amazing. Yep. One of my friends point out they kind of look similar to Orbeez. Yeah, they do. A they do bit. look like that. What's, but they're a lot harder. What's Orbeez? So they're like these little tiny beads. You put them in water and they grow, but I don't think nurdles grow. Okay. You know, I know. They're really so, small. So nurdles are, 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 are just one size. They don't grow. They don't expand. Mm-mm. So what's what's the problem with them, I guess, would be the main question. They're so pervasive. They're just everywhere in our world. Um, how they're super small, how, you know, fish and other sea life eat them. And then, you know, that leads up to us eating them. Um, and I don't know if you know what nurdles are, like, used for, but... Um, so, I, like, I, I don't know what they're used for. Yeah, um, do you know? So they're used to make, like, everything plastic, like... Oh, this water bottle. Yep, yep. Christmas trees, all that. Yep. So they're just like the building blocks. Yep. So where do they come from? Because if they're used to make something, like they don't grow on trees, right? So where do they come from? So I'm pretty sure um, what I was doing is that petroleum factories or something. Mm -hmm. And then they ship them across the oceans, but in like bad weather... Sometimes the creeks fall and it gets into the water, and that's how they wind up on the beaches. Yep. So, okay, so that's something really interesting. So they're actually shipping the nurdles around rather than, you know, having the nurdles, making the plastic water bottles, and then shipping the bottle, but they're just shipping the nurdles instead. Yeah. Why is that? Or is that not why is that, but has that is that a change? Is that something new? I'm sure it's got to do with like how much it costs to ship them. It's probably it weighs less. Like if you made all Mm. these big plastic items that would weigh a bunch and probably cost a bunch to ship. So I'm sure it's way cheaper to just ship, you know, a full container of tens of thousands of nurdles instead of like big bottles. That's wild. Yep. So right, you said they're in everything. They make the, the plastic bottles, Christmas trees everything so what happens to them when they're when they get sort of lost at sea or when they spill into the ocean like do they sink to the bottom do they float how do they um, i'm pretty sure they float but fish get to them they eat them and then most of them wind back up on the ocean not the mm-hmm. ocean um beaches right so then yep. like the the waves or whatever the the tide will bring them in yep so why are they so bad? I mean, I, I I assume that, you know, they can't, it's not real food, right? I mean, so there's, but they're eating them. So what happens to the fish when they eat them? 
They I mean, think they're getting full, but they're not, so they must just starve. Yeah. Yep. So it's like, I mean, I don't want to get all depressing, but it is kind of depressing. It's like the slow, long death. How can people think of nurdles as uh, something other than a danger to fish, right? How do they, how can they see this as relevant or potentially damaging to their own ways of life? I think that is the problem with them because I mean, literally like out of sight, out of mind, I'm in this field and I didn't even know about nurdles until I started at Mississippi state. Mm. So I don't know. I think it's just number one, again, like raising awareness about plastic itself like everything we can recycle we can you know do whatever but like nothing is going to change until we just stop making more plastic so what did you get i got a hermit crab okay so that's alive right yeah and are they are there many of those here uh not that i saw but i this one has a pretty shell so that's probably why i saw it and what else have you found? I found a cannonball jellyfish, a dead fish, <laughs> what and was a lot. A dead catfish? Well, dead catfish? I, yeah. Well, yeah. And like a lot of styrofoam stuff. I found a lot of like party-sized um bags of chips. But not like the big party size, mm. like the small. Yeah. What else have you found a lot? Are you talking about like trash bags or yeah. animals? Styrofoam. There were some minnows down there, and there were a few. Or styrofoam. There was a, a lot, lot of styrofoam. styrofoam. Um, I found some styrofoam cups, some like cups from like fast food restaurants oh. and stuff. A lot of plastic bottles. Yeah. Mhm. Oh my gosh, your shoes. It's fine. And what did you think about it? I thought, okay, the amount of trash out here was like really sad, but... There's that weird thing with all of the sticks. Have you seen it? It like makes two lines and there's nothing in it. It's weird, but I can tell there's still life out here, which that makes me happy. So... So that's hope. Yeah. Yeah. So what about microplastics in Germany? We asked Matthias. Yeah, thank you for your question, guys. I'm very glad for your interest in the in the topic and also for, for the situation here in Germany. So your first question was about, is there microplastic in the environment? So personally, um, I was quite surprised when I um, first did some research because I thought uh, microplastic is rather a problem that's like exclusive to the ocean. And as Germany, it doesn't have like a gr- very long coastline and the place where I live, Bavaria, is not located at the coast at all. I thought that it's not really a problem that's um, th- like of any importance for us. However, it turns out there is actually quite a lot of microplastic, for example, in lakes, in streams, in rivers. The As I said, the concentration is actually surprisingly har- high although it's hard to find like accurate ways of measuring the concentration. A recent study that was conducted on the issue also found some microplastic in fish and mussels. 
that just kind of proves that it's also within the food chain. Um, and for us, secondary microplastics are the main polluters. So basically microplastics that um, came from bigger pieces of plastic that then broke down. So to make it short, yes, there are, are microplastics in the environment here in Germany, and actually uh, quite a lot. And now, a group conversation about how important marine life is for Mississippi's Gulf Coast. Biloxi was once the seafood capital of the world, so why isn't, why isn't it any longer? The world's largest seafood... Uh, seafood what? Seafood capital of seafood the world. Seafood capital, okay. So what does it mean, seafood capital? It, it was just like the industry was so large here and there's I mean you can find pictures of Biloxi where it was just um like oyster farms and they were they were farming for all the oysters and they had these seafood processing plants that was just I mean people didn't use gravel they used oyster shells like just piles of it it was huge and the canning factories that were here that got shipped all over the United States and the world um massive it was it was a massive production but no longer anymore overfishing pollution um so by 1890 biloxi's annual seafood processing was over two million pounds of oysters a year and six hundred thousand pounds of shrimp by so that was in 1890 by 1902 we were up to six million pounds of oysters and then 4.5 million pounds of shrimp. Um, so that we had more um, immigrants that came over, started to work in these these processing. Then there was developments in, um, you know, canning. There was developments in how you were how how you were fishing, um, and then the decline of Biloxi being the seafood capital of the world came from the Great Depression and then the World Wars, um, that started the decline. Um, and then through the early 20th century, hurricanes, natural disasters, and climate change, and then um, that started the decline of the oyster population. What do oysters mean? And everybody who has like a thought on this, I'd love to hear. What do oysters mean um, to the ecosystem here? Yeah, historically, currently, what do they do, just for those of us who don't know? Well, I started yeah. out by saying um, that oysters, there's like a scientific, in the community, we say they're standing for the three Fs, so food, so like food that we eat, filtration, because they filter out pollution from the water, and then fish habitat. So they're making these habitats that all of our offshore fish and coastal inland fish need. So they spend their lives as babies growing up in these protected oyster reefs. And then once they get big enough, they can go back out into open water. So like the three Fs are major. So that's what they help for the fish, were you going to say? So, okay, so you got those, the food, the filtration, and the fish habitats. What do they do for a fish habitat? I mean, I, it's an oyster. How does it create a habitat? Okay, so oysters, 
like to like grow in like these really big like reefs and like clumps of oysters. So there's like little like nooks and like crannies in between like the oysters like like stuck together and stuff. And um yeah, I'd say that like provides a pretty like good habitat for like small like animals. As like a as like a protection from other predators or from the elements. I mean, what but he I'd like to say like a little bit of both. What about um, oyster reefs as um, coastal protection in terms of wave breaking? Um, so, like, I feel like if they get, like, large enough, then it can, like, um, stop, like, waves from, like, crashing up against, like, the shore. And, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really know if it's as prevalent here, but I, I talked about earlier, I don't know if it was on the podcast yet, um, that I'm from North Carolina. So in North Carolina, we do a lot of living shoreline work with oysters. So people will bring their like old oyster shells, like they've eaten oysters, and they want to recycle them. So they'll bring them to like certain areas, and then volunteers or different organizations will come and like bag up the oysters in these really tough um, biodegradable bags. And then you can literally just like stack the bags on top of each other and make reefs and build like a living shoreline that way as a way to protect against, um, you know, wind, waves, um, different just types of erosion. So they're really useful for that. Amazing. What is the, this is going to sound weird, what is the life expectancy of a, an oyster shell? Like, do they deteriorate? Do they sort of, okay? They do deteriorate, but what's cool about oyster shells is new oysters, they choose to grow on old oyster shells. So... I mean, they'll, they'll stick to other things, but they like to grow on oyster shells. So that's another thing that these bagged reefs are doing, is they're creating new reefs and creating new oysters. So far, we've visited an industrial landscape, a coastline, and now we head for an ecosystem rich in biodiversity, climate protection, and cultural meaning. Annabelle tells us what marshes mean in Mississippi, and Matthias shares a poem by Annette Droste-Hulshoff. One culturally significant story revolving around marshlands on the coast is Singing River in Pascagoula. From what I've heard, the story states that the Pascagoula Indian tribe walked together into the river while chanting in order to avoid fighting with the Biloxi Indian tribe. It is said that you can still hear their souls singing the chant on quiet nights. The little lad in the fen, how creepy it is to cross through the fen when it's blowing with haze. Mists with him like phantoms, vine weaving through bushes. Upskirts a springlet beneath every step when hissing and singing come from the gap. How airy it is to cross through the fen when the reed bank rustles in the breeze. The shivering child holds onto a school book and runs as if being hunted. The wind blusses hollow across the flat land. What's rattling over there in the hedge? This is the ghostly peat cutter who drinks away his master's best peat blocks. Who sounds forth like an insane cow. The little boy ducks down fearfully. Gnarled tree stumps stare out from the bank, the pine trees nodding uncannily. The lad runs on, straining his ears on among giant stalks like spears, and how it trickles and whistles therein. 
This is the Sunday spintress. It is spinning on Leonore, bound by a curse, winding her reel among the reeds. Ever at the run, onward as through devils were after him. It is bubbling up in front of his feet, like squeaking under his soles, like a ghostly melody. This is the headless, untrustworthy, violent, violent man. It is Knauf, that thieving fiddler, who stole at the farthing at the wedding. Then the fan bust bursts open. A sigh comes forth, out of the gapping hollow. Ooh, ooh, Margaret, the lost soul, calls out. Oh, oh, my poor soul. The boy jumps like a wounded deer, where his guardian angel not close by. In the smouldering fen, a digger would later find his little bones bleaching there. Gradually now, the ground becomes firm, and over there, next to the willow, some homely twinkles the lamp. The boy stands at the edge. He draws a deep breath and takes one. More nervous look at the fen. Indeed, in the reeds, it was dreadful. How creepy it was in the fen. Thank you for joining us for this inaugural episode of the Climate Cast podcast. Extended conversations and interviews in both German and English will follow, published on the Pocasito website at pocasito.org. A heartfelt congratulations goes to our intrepid student reporters, and thank you to our partners at Mississippi State University Extension in Biloxi and the German Consulate General in Atlanta for their generous support. Stay tuned, more to come, and Happy New Year.